Starship is the next big one. The last time somebody tried to build a rocket with this many engines on it was the Russians during um, the Apollo era. Okay. And they never got a vehicle in orbit. It blew oh. up every single time. Most interesting places on Earth are going to have something looking down at it mm -hmm. almost yeah. continuously. Oftentimes mm -hmm. we see the technology before the government does. Mm -hmm. And we see its development. We understand what is going on when it's likely to go to market. What's going on, Stephen and Michael? So happy to have you here. We are with the founders of Starbridge Capital. Great to be here. We're good. Yeah. Listen, um, this is the first time we have somebody, uh, two gentlemen on the on the podcast, covering the space, the industry of space, uh, space explorations, colonization, tools in space, and we'll cover all of that. And it's it's very interesting to me because you know I think every generation has their their space moment, so to say. You know, if you go three generations back, it was actually just the airplane. You know, the Wright brothers, uh, one generation ago, uh, was you know stepping the first human stepping foot on the moon, you know, which we'll talk about later, maybe briefly. And of course, you know, the younger generation having Elon Musk bring back space, because I remember being in high school and the uh, the manned space programs were getting canceled. It looked like we were not, not going back. And, you know, one of my memories about space was I was in elementary school in my geography class. And I told my professor, I saw a documentary, you know, we're going to Mars in my lifetime. And he told me, it's never going to happen. It's going to be not in the generation of your grandkids, grandkids, grandkids. And yet here we are. Not only do we have you know people like Elon Musk of SpaceX you know going to space, but even there's an entire industry which I'm so looking forward to today's session. Where you know I'm a dabbler. I've, I've invested with you and a couple others, and really want to break down the space thesis with you. Of you know where is it? Where has it gone? And where's it kind of going next? So thanks so much for being here. Um, so much going on. It took two of us. Yes. To yeah. It. And so before we get into like the really nitty gritty, I would love to learn from you, kind of. Why did you get into space? And also, like, why, why, why did you start? Like, what's the opportunity you saw? And like, where do you say, like, hey, you know, there's, there's this current path of life you're on where you say, hey, there's something bigger out there. And also, like, what does it kind of mean to you? Maybe we'll start with you, Stephen. Sure. So I've always been kind of a science geek. Mm -hmm. I, um, straight A student, all that goody goody stuff all mm -hmm. the way through school. Um, graduated with a bacteriology degree and then promptly went into finance. So science was always my background, but I also wanted to make money. Um, I, I started looking at the space sector around 2004, I think, when mm -hmm. the X Prize yep. was announced. And, and I was very interested in watching that because it was the first time I'd ever heard of a commercial company doing something in space. And I grew up a Star Wars fan and all sci-fi and all, all, that, all that stuff. But you know, this is the first time it actually connected to my work. Yeah, And I was trading, um, I was a portfolio manager of a hedge fund down here in Florida at that point in time, I believe. Maybe it was a little bit earlier. Um, and so when I, I saw one company on the stock index who was a commercial space company, it was a mm -hmm. little company called Space Dev. And they were developing rocket engines, hybrid rocket engines that were going to go in this crazy little space plane that then... They had this whole 20-year plan of how they were going to develop commercial space. And I, I didn't know if it was real or not, but mm -hmm. I, I started listening in on their quarterly conference calls and just kind of really getting into what their vision was because it, it, it's really cool. Yeah. And that company eventually got bought out by Sierra Space. Now I'm jumping forward a yep. little bit. 
Um, that is Dream Chaser. That company's original technology is what you're now seeing out of CR Space mm. that's going to be launching. Um, I, I don't know what their I don't remember what their timetable ta- is, but it's it's one of the first space planes that you're going to see, and it is oh. funded and it is contracted, and it's going to be happening. space planes, as in like the spaceships we know from them, like it, actually up on oh no, it, going it, to space. It launches vertically on the top of a traditional rocket, yep. and then it is a glide back like the shuttle. Mm. Um, so it is one of the and is that is is that for practical purposes or more like tourism? Both. So they have a cargo and they have a, a cool. an astronaut version of it. Okay. But yeah. That, but, that, but back that to your story, note. right? Yes, yeah. Yeah. Yes, so, yes. so 2004, I started dabbling in it a little bit. Um, there wasn't much commercial, as mm-hmm. I was saying. Um, it wasn't until about 2011, 2000, yeah, 2011, when my wife was pregnant with mm-hmm. our first child, and I started, you know, thinking hedge funds. What am I doing? You know, what am I adding? Yeah. You know, wh- where is this all going? And yeah, you just get philosophical, I guess, sure. when, you, when you start having your first kids. And I finally decided I had to get off the fence yeah. and actually see if there was something there. Yeah. And so I started going to space conferences, starting meeting people kind of on my own time, um, really trying to see if there was a commercial angle mm-hmm. in this that I could revert back into what I was already doing. And so... I, I followed that for several more years. I did a few angel investments here and there. But it wasn't until 2017 that I felt, you know, I was seeing enough commercial deal flow, early stage companies that where the business case actually closed. Because I, I did a lot of mm-hmm. investment analysis as my day job. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I was looking for that point where my profession and my passion were able to converge. Mm-hmm. And that happened in 2017. I, I saw how I could construct a, a viable portfolio like I was doing in all my other work and get investors an outsized return from it. Mm-hmm. And it, it was, you know, Michael can rattle off, I'm sure, a hundred reasons why that was. And I saw some of them and he saw some of them, but we met in 2017 and so, 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 so was it the, the business opportunity that drew to space or was there something, you know, you know, some people grew up saying like, you know, one day I want like, you know, yeah. Elon Musk has a famous yeah. quote saying he wants to die on Mars, but not on impact. Yes. Like, is this something where you say like, I actually want to one time in my life live on, like live in space. So I'm very practical mm-hmm. when it comes to this. It was my passion, but I didn't activate my passion until I saw the business Got it. that was still there. So this is something I plan to do for the rest of my life, mm-hmm. but I had to wait until the opportunity and the, the market was there. I, I, I didn't think I could build it. Yeah. Um, I think as Starbridge grows, we'll have more influence in actually helping to shape it. Yeah. But, you know, we're not driving it. Mm-hmm. This, this is something that has come together naturally and due to decades and decades of research right. and development. And, you know, we're, we're essentially trend followers. Right. With one little pinky on the wheel, maybe. Right. And point. we'll cover a, a lot of that, too, because, you know, <sighs> I think there's been an interesting, um, you know, regime change over the last few decades where everything was purely public sector driven yeah. originally. Um, and now it's slowly becoming, then it became billionaire driven for a while. And, you know, as the cost of space is kind of going down, it's becoming more and more of an industry where you as an 
normal individual, you you might actually start being able to have influence. Absolutely. You know, whether that's as a founder or as an allocator, which is, it's it was virtually impossible unless you know you you know the the, the famous joke is how to become a millionaire. You start with a billion dollars and then invest yeah. in space. Yeah. You know, yeah, um, that's really opened it's, up. It's still somewhat the case from time to time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but but how about you, Michael? How what, you know what drew you to space and what made you get started in in this industry? I actually sort of gave up on space as a mm. young kid. I, I flew model rockets as a kid. I was like 12, 13 years old. But I, w I was never the best in school. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, you know, back then, if you... Um, so we get the, the, the school geek and the not so good in school. To totally. Right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I, I could do it if I wanted to. I just yeah. didn't entertain me or didn't challenge me or, or wasn't interesting. And so... I looked at the requirements for what it would take to get to NASA mm. and like either, you know, a Navy fighter pilot or, you know, a PhD. I'm like, yeah, just not for me. So I went another direction. Yeah. And that direction was into the internet because I graduated high school and then right about that time, um, really got plugged into the internet about the time it, late 89, early 90, mm -hmm. um, pre-web. If anybody remembers Gopher, that was what was around. I actually wrote a little bit of that. And, Spent the next, you know, 13 years doing that. Um, yep. Had one of the first 12 web servers in the world running for Georgia Tech at the time when I worked for them, that kind of thing. Um, and right around after, about two years after the bubble popped, mm -hmm. 2001, that, that happened, um, actually had a heart attack early. I was 33 mm -hmm. years old, kind of young. And laying on the hospital bed, I said, okay, if I'm ever going to do anything interesting in my life, I better get off my ass and actually yeah. do something about it. And even though all the stuff I did on the internet was quite interesting and fun, I really wanted to go beyond that. So that's when I tried my first startup, completely screwed it up, um, did all the mistakes that I now tell people not to do because I, I did them. But what I was noticing, um, and this comes from reading a lot of like Clayton Christensen, innovation uh, theory, you know, technology diffusion, how it happens. What I noticed was um, out in the Black Rock Desert, there were a bunch of people flying rockets hobby rockets but they mm. were getting very large they were starting to do the things that even 10 15 years earlier only a government could do mm. and i saw the same trend that the internet had done to democratizing information democratizing information technology i looked at the space the the, the hobby space sector and mm -hmm. i saw the same trend i'm like okay this is going to go the same route mm -hmm. this is something i can get behind because it's just as it's going to be just as transformational as the internet was. And it's like, it's a fairly um, unique position in your life to be able to be involved in two radical changes to the human experience across yeah. the globe. And when I pivoted away from the internet and started uh, basically did a lot of blogging about the fact that there were a lot of com people talking about doing business in space who had never actually done business. Mm -hmm. Had no idea what the time value of money was or anything like that. And, a lot uh, of like futurists and visionaries. Yes, yeah, a lot of people like well, selling engineers. Right. Very you know, somebody just gives me $3 billion, I'll go build a space station. Mm -hmm. like, okay. Um, so I was talking about that and I had some friends call me up and called me out on it and said, I, I'm building a launch company. I need a CFO and I need mm -hmm. someone to do sales. That was when I joined a company called Mastin Space Systems, which was doing vertical takeoff and mm -hmm. landing yeah. before Elon even started doing it. And, and you know, there was a lot of synergy at the time, but a whole bunch of companies were trying this stuff out. We had no idea what we were doing. Mm -hmm. um, 
did that for a while, really got embedded in the sector. And some of this goes back to some of the things that we did. Specifically, there was a law passed in 2004, right after the X-Price flight, that it made it legal for commercial companies to actually fly into space without mm. having, to have a, having to have a government contract. Right. That law really opened up. That's the law that allowed Elon to launch a Falcon yep. 1. And that was one of the real transformational moments in being there and doing that. Um, 2008 financial crisis came around, went back and did a few internet things, built a, a mobile technology consultancy startup, um, but always had that, was watching what was going on in the sector. Mm -hmm. And I ended up at um, just a generic technology venture fund in Atlanta at the time. And I saw, um, what I saw at the time was larger venture capital funds were starting to dabble in the sector. Mm -hmm. And they really didn't have the core understanding of what works, what doesn't, what businesses are, are real, which ones aren't. Mm -hmm. um, and, he, and this goes all the way up to Sequoia, some of their decisions at the time of what to invest in. Big firms making those mistakes. But at the same time, and this is something that Stephen and I talked about when we got together in 2017, mm -hmm. was bad decisions, but also companies that we knew were real companies and actually had real businesses couldn't find that funding because those big traditional mm -hmm. you know investors couldn't understand it yeah and that's when we sort of d decided it's time for a sector specific made of professional money managers mm -hmm. Stephen, yeah and people who understand the business of running running a company in the sector mm -hmm. that combined was necessary to be able to get real traditional finance to be able to rationally engage with the emerging space sector and that's where that started to take off in 2017. Awesome. And I have a whole line of questions regarding like kind of like, you know, profitability versus futurism down the mm -hmm. line. But maybe before we get into like the really the, the kind of the business side of things, I want to take a more an eagle eye look over the space sector. Because we know if somebody asks me, how would you conceptualize metaverse? I can give it a pretty nitty gritty breakdown, of like what are the different subsegments, you know? So I want to do the same thing with you guys. Kind of what's the space thesis? Because, you know, there's so many different things floating around. Most people probably think of tourism, maybe something of exploration, maybe of like asteroid mining, maybe of like colonization. And then, of course, there's more surface level things like, hey, better satellite technology, things that actually help Earth, right? And then as we were standing out on the balcony, you would tell me all crazy things like, you know, how you can use it for medicine and genetics. So mm -hmm. if you had to kind of conceptually break it down, what are maybe these buckets that put to like that make up the space industry? On so, high level, yeah. So it changes so much over time. It depends upon what frame you're looking at. Mm -hmm. If you're looking at in the past, it was almost almost all government, almost all geo geosynchronous satellites with communications. Yep. In the last 10 years, <clears throat> it has changed so much. And if you're going out another 10 years, it's going to – it's one of the most rapidly changing industries. So right now, if you're looking at it, um, from our perspective – So maybe, maybe the framing then would be – Yep. What what is it made up of today? Meaning, what's there today? Yep. And maybe the next ten years. Yep. So it's going to change a lot, as I yeah. said. Right now, all the focus has come to low Earth orbit. Yep. So everything that you're seeing launched on SpaceX rockets, mm -hmm. almost everything is going to low Earth orbit. Mm -hmm. You're seeing a, a rapid deployment of of new satellites. Five years ago, I think we had maybe 1,800, 2,000 satellites active in orbit. I, I think SpaceX can 
do that in a couple of years time <laughs> at this point. There was a statistic and I so, saw the other day that um, in one year, SpaceX launched more satellites than in the first 52 years of the entire space program. Wow. Yeah, it's it's crazy. So and I, and I mean, it was just a quick side. I see because yep. I have been to the SpaceX headquarters. One of my LPs invited me over there. Shout out Ashlyn, um, and we saw like this. It's like a factory. I mean, it's mm -hmm. really like literally from the beginning of the building to the end of the building. At the beginning of the building, they build the first few parts. That every little piece coming together. They have these scanners to make sure there's not a single hole in it. You know, and as we get progressed to the very end, they almost like piled up the rockets ready to go to space. Yep. And so they've turned something that's like, let's do build one rocket at a time into essentially a factory of them. Yeah. Yeah, there's a little bit of a race going on now to see how many satellites the mm -hmm. companies can get up fast enough before, I don't know, regulation caps, catches up and it, it, too it, it becomes too crowded and you have to have a, a better regime for how mm -hmm. you're assigning orbital slots and all, all this kind of stuff. I mean, there is a, regime, a very intricate regime in mm -hmm. place, but we're talking something like 50 to 100,000 active satellites within the next few years Wow, up there. So yeah, some of our people living on the West Coast sometimes get a, a pretty good view of mm -hmm. uh, Starlink going in a, in a row across the sky. And, and what's the purpose of having 52,000? Do they all serve? Is coverage. It just coverage. coverage. Yeah. Okay. So when you're dealing with low Earth orbit, um, in, in GEO, you have one satellite above a point, mm -hmm. like almost like a fixed point yeah. on the Earth. And so it's in constant communication. In LEO, these things are traveling like 17, 17, mm -hmm. five miles per hour. Mm -hmm. um, miles per hour? Miles yes. per second? Okay. Just, I have to check with my, <laughs> my technical guy once in a while here. Um, and so you only get coverage over a spot for oh. a, a brief period of time, and got then it. it's got to swap to another satellite. So to have constant coverage, you have to have a constellation wow. of satellites that cover that area. And then to cover all the areas simultaneously, you mm. have to have this massive swarm. It almost looks like a living being yeah. circling the planet. And so is it... Does let's say like AT&T then own the satellite, or like you know they leasing along with Verizon, everybody else? Like, are multiple companies using the same satellite, or is it that each company is their own, which is why there's so many of them? That's that was the the model previously, yeah. where every, mm -hmm. the communication satellites were were in geosync, yeah, and that was where Boeing would build a satellite, yeah. and then communications companies would lease parts yeah. of it for the for the signal. When you get down into what the, these LEO communications uh, constellations like Starlink, OneWeb, um, those are run by one company mm. and they provide that connectivity through their service. So when you get a subscription to Starlink, which Stephen now has one, which is actually gives him some of the best connectivity he's ever had Finally. in rural Wisconsin. Finally. Um, you can sometimes see the there's a, a brief blip in connectivity mm. as one satellite that's passed overhead hands yep. it off to the next satellite as they come overhead. Um, like it, you can actually go out to the beach where it's darkening, where it's darkening, mm -hmm. right after dusk and just look up and you'll see the skies now full of, of Starlink satellites and you'll uh -huh. see them faintly flying over. And what's happening is, is the same, te same technology we use for cell phones where when the phone is moving, you're switching from tower to tower to tower. Mm. Now you're just inverting that. The towers are flying overhead and the phone is, is stationary. Mm. It's the same thing. And so that's that that switching that occurs. And so yeah, they're owned by one company, and they provide a service, and that service gets used by all kinds of different applications. Super interesting because initially I thought like, wow, we you know we're going to have fifty thousand to one hundred thousand satellites swarming around Earth. Um, at some point, they're going to plug out the sunlight. Also, like if you if you're going to try, it's like you know shoot up a rocket, you've got to make sure not to hit one. But 
at the scale of the earth, 100,000 is still pretty small, you know, like there's, cause there's going to be miles and miles between each and every one of them. It's I'm not, assuming. it's not crowded. Yeah. It's not crowded. No, not just not yet. Yet. We need a couple more for that. It's, yeah. it's yeah. not crowded until something goes where it's not supposed to. Yeah. And that's, that's when we have. It could get crowded real quick if you have a uh, dramatic deassembly of some satellite hitting another satellite. Sure. And then hitting that a lot orbital. of space junk everywhere. Well, but, but even then, it only affects usually one orbital plane. Yeah. And in low Earth orbit, people don't understand this, but it's a self-cleaning orbit. Oh. These things are constantly getting a little bit of Earth's atmosphere okay. hitting them. Which erodes them? It, it slows them down little bit by little bit. Yeah. They, they eventually fall out of the sky until oh. they just go... Great. So we've got satellites falling on our heads. <laughs> well, they're, well they, they're going they so fast, up. they burn up. Nice. Yeah. Okay. And they're, they're designed to, to burn up. I, I, I want to loop it back to the original question, which was the space thesis, right? So because mm -hmm. we start with that. So currently, the focus is really on, you said, like satellite technologies. Any other subsegments? About half our portfolio is is satellites and, and true space hardware type, mm -hmm. where, where we're finding you know a lot of value still. Um, Earth observation is another big growth area right, right now in like that. Umbra. Like Umbra, uh, hyperspectral satellites. Mm -hmm. we're, we're even looking at some real-time video from space yeah. satellites. Um, it's a lot of demand in, in military, in, in industry, mm -hmm. uh, even in tracking climate change and all of the things that are mm -hmm. changing on the Earth. Okay. That, that's what they excel at is change detection. So, so, so all that's both, I guess, today and the next 10 years. I know there's some mm -hmm. things in portfolio, whether it's Explore or Off-Worlds. Um, yep. Which is more for those that don't know, it's like, you know, whether it's space exploration or whether it's space, I guess, colonization, like, you know, starting mm -hmm. to like, you know, get materials from there. Um, how far is that out? You know, like, I think because I think when people think space, they really think that they think, yeah. you know, we're all we're going to become a spacefaring civilization, multiplanetary. Yep. Um, I applaud maybe, their vision, but yeah. that's not where we are right now. OK, no, when, as, when are as, we there? Well, as a fund, we have to invest in our tenure time windows. OK, sure. So whatever we invest in, we think we are going to get an exit within we say 10 years, but we have to put it into the five to seven year bucket. Mm -hmm. And then if it takes 10, sometimes it takes 10, everything takes longer than you expect it to. Um, so so then, some of those far off ideas are outside of our investment window. Mm -hmm. But what we're investing in related to them now is their precursors. Yep. So if you like space mining, what we're investing in now is the companies that are making fully autonomous mining vehicles, yep. mining robots, essentially, mm -hmm. to work on Earth. Got Perfect it. it here, make money here. Maybe we get an exit. Maybe, maybe you know, they get mm -hmm. a spinoff. Some, something where we get our money back to our investors with a good return. And in the process, you have developed the technology that is necessary for lunar mining, asteroid mining, all these things in the future that are outside that 10-year window. But Got some, it. some, you have to build those technologies up. You don't just start a, a, a space mining company and yeah. expect it to be profitable. So then maybe paint the picture. The so like t t today's state, I think most people are somewhat aware of, okay, so it's, it's satellites, it's SpaceX, it's like yeah. first types of space tourism. Yep. What does the space sector look like 10 years from now? Like how does it affect people's lives maybe? Like what does the average consumer see of all these things? I think one of the things to to kind of step back a little bit on some yep. of the things, especially in a 10-year time frame. Yep. Um, 10 years goes by pretty quick. Yeah. And a lot so, changes in 10 years. Right. And I think one of the things to understand for a lot of the more far off future 
space things like you know, space settlement and mining asteroids. Mm -hmm. There's there's an economic problem mm -hmm. in that resources in, from space specifically, which and the logistics that support them, um, are incredibly difficult to compete directly get against the existing optimized supply chains that exist on the earth. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that from a space economics standpoint, and yes, there are actually people that have PhDs in space economics, um, there's a saying that we have that, that resources from space only make sense in space. Mm -hmm. So there's space for space and there's space for earth. Mm. So when we talk about space for earth, we're talking about things that are bits. Mm. So it's earth observation and communication. So yeah. those make sense. It's here. a good way to put it. Yeah. Right. But if you're, talking about actual physical things, like I want to go mine an asteroid, you can't you can't bring it back to the Earth and make a profit at it because the mine that's down here is already highly efficient. Mm. It's really hard to overcome the launch costs for getting up yeah. there, the delta V to be able to get it back down here, um, how to get it back down in one piece, that kind of thing. And so the things that we look for are when do the other applications that need to be in space mm -hmm hit a tipping point where those things that are in space need resources to maintain what they're doing. Mm. Um, and right now, with the industry being dominated by Earth observation and communications, they don't need those resources. They just need electricity, yeah. and that's it. And they get that from solar panels. Solar wings, yeah. Right. And so one of the things that, that we look at is one of the drivers that needs those, space, those resources on an ongoing pace, basis are people. Mm -hmm. So what we're looking for is when does the tipping point occur when we have enough people living in space? Mm -hmm. Living and working in living space. Living and working in space and making money yep. in space and doing everything that human being, beings do in space, that there are enough of them that it makes more sense to bring things down from the moon or mm -hmm. down from an asteroid or whatever to supply them versus bringing it up from the Earth. That's that tipping point when that occurs. And so we're paying really close attention to the current, what people call space tourism markets, but with the changes that, that SpaceX brought with the, the, the new Crew Dragon, the spacesuits and everything, being in space now actually looks sexy. Mm -hmm. Whereas previously on a Soyuz, it looked miserable and it really was. <laughs> it was miserable. It was miserable. Um, you have to wear a diaper, your knees are around your chin, you're cramped for three days straight. No, it's not fun. Um, you're starting to see more people decide that they're willing to spend the money to go because they have a personal reason to go. And they're spending about $50 million a person, so it's a lot of money. So what we're looking for is you're now getting the the, the initial reboot of yeah. the space tourism market that once that price starts coming down a little bit, the market gets larger. Mm -hmm. And we think that one of the inflection points is roughly around $20 million a person. Mm -hmm. If you get it down to that point, you go from... 10 to 20 people per year to hundreds of people. Yeah. Because at that point, there's ways to finance that. Um, you know, depending on where you live, you know, if the, a reasonable house in San Francisco, you save it up, you know, you sell your house, you can go to space. Um, and that's what we're looking for is mm -hmm. what are those inflection points where when a certain price hits a certain level, that enables those things. And so I would say, those kind of futuristic space mining, uh, space habitats. And that's yeah. one of the things we're watching right now, which is NASA is getting out of the space station business. Mm -hmm. The International Space Station will will be decommissioned around 2030. Oh, really? At the end of the decade. Okay. It's getting old. 
It's yeah. way past its lifetime in a lot of cases. And so NASA has a program called the Commercial Leo Destinations Program, yeah. where they are incentivizing and working with other companies to build new commercial space stations. Mm -hmm. um, one of them is a company that we've invested in, Axiom Space. Mm -hmm. um, they've been flying, they've already flown one mission up to ISS with three astronauts. They're yeah. doing another one this summer. The other was Blue Origin, which is Jeff Bezos' company. Um, there's two others, Sierra Space, which Stephen mentioned a minute ago, and another one called Voyager Space. Mm -hmm that's working with the European Space Agency. Those are the destinations that people can go to. We expect those to come online and start providing services at the later part of this decade, starting probably around 26, 2026, 27. When you have that and the ISS going away, you now have these companies trying to build sustainable businesses. Mm -hmm. And if the launch costs for flying people up there gets down to that $20 million range, mm -hmm that's when you start to see that system where more people are going. The space stations are growing. They're adding habitats. Now they need resources. That's kind of the inflection point that we're still looking at. Mm -hmm. so when we see that occur, then I start actively looking at, you know, resources from the moon. Mm -hmm. Makes sense from a Delta V standpoint. Because if you think of the, the Earth-Moon system, the, 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 moon, the Earth is at the bottom of the hill and the moon's up at the top of the hill. Mm. So if you take stuff up there, you just toss it down the hill. Hmm. And that's why it's efficient. And so those are some of the trends that we're looking for. Mm -hmm. um, right now, my gut suggests it's going to be right around 2030. The wild card in all of this is Starship. Mm -hmm. Is the launch capability of that vehicle, the amount of just room it has in that payload fairing. The amount of mass it can take. And, and, and for context, Starship is the, the, the bigger ship work uh, from SpaceX that can transport a lot of people, right? Yes. Yeah, because Dragon is the small, manned, like maybe four people, right? Yep. Yeah, how many can how many people can start spaceship, uh, Starship? I've fit? seen a couple of designs where if you just cram it full of seats, it can take about 100 people. Wow. Yep. Okay. Right. Um, it's, a, it's a massive increase over capacity. It's the largest rocket that's right now. Built. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so. And we, but, we do have to give Elon a lot of credit. He oh, yeah. did almost single-handedly transform commercial space. Right. The the lowering of launch costs, the reusability. I mean, I, and, he was and, driving and, all and, these and, things. And I remember reading his biography where it talked about how he was buying like decommissioned um, Russian um, rockets. He right? was trying to. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that failed deal actually spurred him to create SpaceX. Oh, right. So, yeah, yeah. He, he wanted to buy decommissioned Russian ICBMs to launch a greenhouse right the greenhouse yeah. to mars and the russians played games mm -hmm. and it all fell through and elon right. instead of like, giving Wait, up, i can build this myself what parts do he i did. need and yeah. that's when the entrepreneur in him kind of kicked in and going wow this is a market is waiting to be disrupted yeah. and i can do it and yeah. yeah right and i think yeah he said like he could actually do it cheaper than buy it you know and that and that's what we're seeing across the board here so elon is dramatically lowering launch costs everybody's having to follow up and do their own thing to match but that's that's trans i i, I saw the graph uh not to interrupt yep. you know what the, where from the 80s to today it's mm -hmm. dropped by 99 percent, and then it's prognosticated it, by 2050 it drops another 99 percent. yep and if it was just that I don't think most of the cases would still close, but we had a whole bunch of other things that happened at the same time mm -hmm. where we had miniaturization of, of components. Yeah. You know, the computer revolution isn't just in your cell phone. It's it's in everything that goes into space, into, you know, your vehicles everywhere. Um, the satellites got smaller, which means, you know, mass is everything yeah. when you're launching something to space. The, the solar panels got better. 
everything just started working mm-hmm. better. And again, this is decades of tech development mm-hmm. and it just came together for the right time. Being able to land and reuse rockets was obviously like, you know, one of those big turning points. What are mm-hmm. what are the next optimizations that are still possible to reduce the cost? So the, Starship is the next big one. Starship is the next big one. And the, the, the key thing that Starship is doing that Falcon 9 can't do right now, which mm-hmm. is recover the second stage. There mm-hmm. is no, yeah. when, 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 when Falcon 9 launches, mm-hmm. they recover the booster. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But there's an additional stage that takes the satellite that it's carrying from that initial non-orbital altitude mm-hmm. and actually accelerates it up to the point where it's in orbit. Mm-hmm. Those get fall back into the ocean. They, they haven't been able to figure out a way to, to recover those economically. Starship solves that by the entire thing comes back every single mm. time. Um, but it's got the payload fairing. And what we one of the things that, that Steve and I have looked at around the industry is we talk to entrepreneurs about, okay, what is your strategy and plan for dealing with Starship? How does mm-hmm. it change your business? And the answer that we, we get time and time again is, I'm not really sure. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, I can launch my constellation faster. Okay, yeah. that, that's not. It's not incremental improvement. It, it's incremental is all they're thinking about. Revolutionary it, change. Not but so much. you have a revolutionary rocket over here. Yeah. yeah. What do you really do with it? And so, it's almost like somebody has brought in something from the far future, and we're a bunch of monkeys poking at it, <laughs> and we don't know what to do with it. It's pretty much it. Right. And so the the the, the phrase that we use is the, is the starship singularity. Is we know he's going to build it, but we don't know what the space industry looks like on the other side of it. Got it. Well, first it's got to get off the pad. Yes. So that, that's and what we're all waiting with bated breath to see. What's the timeline on for it? Could, well, Starship. the booster could actually fly tomorrow. Wow. Um, Elon actually flew down to Boca Chica yesterday. Mm. And so that's what we're looking for. That, at least in my mind, understanding that one of the biggest impacts of large rockets mm. is the acoustics of all those engines firing it. Because... The when you physics hear that roar, just gets crazy mm, when right. you add this many engines together. When you hear that roar of a rocket, that's because the exhaust is coming out supersonic. Yeah. And when you have that, you're having this continuous sonic boom bouncing in between all these engines inside the engine bell. Of the, and, and that is the biggest risk for that vehicle is the acoustics of those engines, all 33 of them going off at once. Why? What, what, what would it cause? It because vibrations, okay. because the sound is bouncing oh, off of all these really things. It's really hard to model perfectly. And it, and it, and it amplifies. Yeah. I mean, SpaceX is as good as it gets, but it's still, it's hard for anybody to make this the, the last time perfect somebody tried the first to build, time. The last time somebody tried to build a rocket with this many engines on it was the Russians during um, the Apollo era. Okay. And they never got a vehicle in orbit. It blew oh. up every single time. And the, the understanding was... Either the start, how to get all 33 engines going at once, mm-hmm. which is a hard problem, but then how to deal with the acoustics of it. Mm-hmm. And that's the two biggest issues. Mm-hmm. And so that's what, you know, once I get the under, you know, the idea that when they do the road closures and they mm-hmm. know they're about to do it, you know, Stephen, you may have to do all the meetings yourself because I'm going to have to watch that. <laughs> um, but that's, that's the biggest thing it, yeah. because we know that the, the vehicle on top will work. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the booster and that booster works then it's, they'll probably crash a few. Yeah. But at that point, you know, the system will work. To, to, to rotate it off into uh, temporarily something a little bit more philosophical, because I think there's the, many different companies have different approaches. So, for example, Blue Origin's sure. um, whole thesis, as I understand it, is mm-hmm. well, Blue Origin, like nothing will be like Earth. So let's move industri- industry to like the moon or other planets, right? Mm-hmm. 
um, where there's a certain level of Earth romanticism too, you know. Um, and then there's, you know, SpaceX probably, you know, Elon says, this planet too will one day die. We need to become multiplanetary we want to survive a species. Mm-hmm. And so I guess the, the, the difference is one is like industrial space, one is residential space. And, you know, a lot of times we mentioned climate change earlier, you know, people say like, oh, why are we going to space when we have problems here, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where do you see um, the future of space? Is it that we will, you will, we will use space, like space technologies more as an auxiliary tool to make life here better and like save this planet? Or is it more so that we're finding plan Bs and, you know, colonizing? There's... Jeff Bezos, when he did his high school valedictorian speech, mm-hmm. you know, was talked about um, an astrophysicist named Gerard K. O'Neill. Mm-hmm. And that's where a lot of this really does originate from. And, and, and even when you hear Elon talk, um, he's, he's talking about the same thing that, that Jerry O'Neill talked about. Mm-hmm. He was an astrophysicist at the time, um, and a lot of people in the space industry were his students. And he asked a very important question mm-hmm. of his students to do an evaluation of is the surface of a planet the appropriate place to build a technological civilization? And the conclusion that his students came to was no. Mm-hmm. That if you really do want to build a high energy technological civilization with large numbers of people, you need to do it in space because that's where the actual, there's a sufficient resources to do it. Mm-hmm. You can do it on the surface of a planet, but you will need enough resources and energy that you will end up destroying the planet in the process. And so whether it's Elon going to Mars um, or Jeff Bezos building what we call O'Neill cylinders or, you know, Mm -hmm. habitats in space with large numbers of people, it's the same general idea is the future of an expanding, uh, thriving human race is in space because that's the only place that has the resources that allow us to realize all of our ambitions. And if you if we stay down here, um, we are naturally constrained by the capabilities of the planet. Or one day kill the planet, right? Or that's kill, that's, that's kill the planet it's, it's one of those two. Mm-hmm. Essentially, right. you either have to make concessions and say we're gonna fight progress, or essentially, you know, consume all the resources. Right, and that's that's one of the things that Jeff Bezos talks about. Mm. Is those are your two two choices, either an aspirational, expanding, growing idea of what it means to be humanity. But if you're here, it's stagnation. Yeah. You mm-hmm. can't, you have to limit everything that you do because you're going to eat the earth if you don't. Right. And yeah. so that's that's where everybody comes from. And so that's why, whether it's Elon or, or even, um, you know, pretty much anybody in the industry that's talking about human spaceflight, that's it's, where we're going. It's fascinating because, like, I, I knew... It was deeply rooted for Bezos because, you know, I remember in the in, in the early days, like Blue Origin was like a secret project. And like he even said, like, you know, mm-hmm. Amazon was essentially like a means to an end to do Blue Origin. But I didn't know that like, he talked about it as a valedictorian speech already. I mean, this is like, mm-hmm. you know, beginning of the life where it's like, this is what I'm setting out to do. And I'm, I know he I know he thinks long term because he has this. I, th- I think he built a millennium clock somewhere like mm-hmm. deep in a mountain, which is another like fascinating little side story of Bezos. If somebody doesn't has, hasn't heard about that one. Mm-hmm. Um Let's get into the more business and the funding side. Um, we talked earlier about how, you know, you guys are taking a very much a business approach, like what is actually possible, you know, and like how can they make money today? Um, but also we mentioned earlier how the funding has changed from like public sector to private sector to now there's a venture capital space. Um, 
how much are governments still involved in the space industry, given that you're saying the ISS is, is, is even getting shut down? Like if you had to say like percentage wise, where's the funding coming from? Still a lot of government spending going mm -hmm. into this. It's, it's just shifting in how it's being spent. Okay. So the commercial companies are coming in and providing the same or better service at mm -hmm. a cheaper price. And they're adding new technologies, new capabilities into the systems. <clears throat> so I'll, I'll take radar satellites for, yeah. for an example. Before 2015, you couldn't even have a commercially licensed U.S. radar satellite company. Mm -hmm. the, the laws weren't in place to allow them to do it outside of a military mm -hmm. contract. Um, as, as that industry grows, the, the government programs shift from government-owned, operated, um, managed systems to now commercial contracts mm. with outsourced companies who own their own satellites, their own data, their own hardware. Government might have an exclusive license to parts of that data, but they're also paying less for mm -hmm. it than if they were operating the system under the traditional budget. If they could even build it. If they could even build it, because the, the innovation that we're seeing now is, is so much faster than what we had when it was just purely government, because the incentives are there. Mm -hmm. You know, the next company wants to one-up the one that formed five years ago with something better. Yeah. And there just wasn't that same kind of uh, motivation and, and reward that there was under the government system. But yes, it is government is still a, a significant player. Um, we're seeing more commercial activity, but it, it's slower than the government adoption, I would say, for, for a lot of these services, yeah. a lot of these yeah. services, except in communication. Communication moves pretty fast. Everybody gets communications, but especially earth observation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a there's a challenge right now in I can give you a, a picture or a, a SAR waveform. But they have to know what to do with it. it don't, right. And especially you have to be able to then take that data and correlate it and, and add other data from other sources to it to be able to produce an information product that helps somebody actually solve a problem. Yeah. And that's what we're in right now in earth observation. We're getting a lot of new companies that are finally getting to the point where I've got the data, but I want to solve a problem mm. as opposed to I want to build a satellite. I like yeah. building satellites. Yeah, I want to build yeah, a satellite. Yeah. No, I have somebody that has, there's a real problem, whether it's, you know, erosion of um, coastal islands because of, mm -hmm. you know, sea level rise, or it's uh, one of the ones right now is detection of tsunamis in the middle mm -hmm. of the Pacific. I mean, if with the right satellites, you can detect a one-inch rise in the surface wow. of the ocean, and that's how big a tsunami is when it's in the middle of the ocean. It's only a one-inch or so increase in the, the height of the ocean. Wow. But when it hits land, then you get a tsunami. And it's those kinds of problems that people are now realizing the data's there. Yeah. I can use a satellite system to be able to get the data. But it's becoming cheaper too. Right. You know, and that's the, as, as these right. prices of the data come down, just like launch costs mm -hmm. came down, new business cases open up, people find new ways to use it that they previously couldn't because they couldn't afford the data. Well, and one of the key aspects of the lowering prices is now it allows people to experiment. Mm -hmm. Right. Previously, if you're going to build a satellite, you had to get somebody, the government, to create a billion-dollar program Correct. to build it all. Now you've got CubeSats being built by seventh graders in schools and flying them. And so when you have that kind of – now you're getting into – more of a you know from a from a software engineer standpoint your build compile test cycle mm -hmm. 
is is really really rapid whereas mm -hmm. 20 years ago it took a decade to build a satellite right and i'm curious because um you know, kind of kind of back to the funding so since government is still the one like funding a lot of this how does that look like from uh, that's changing. It's it's it changing. Depends on the company right. and, and but what whether they are doing which the one we're funding, about. but it's also like contracts. I mean, I mean, yeah. contracts still matter a lot. It right. seems like. But the the federal government doesn't actually fund, doesn't act as an investor. Okay. So it's really just acting as a customer. Customer. They're, they're buying services Correct. that they need. Right. That, but that's what it comes down to. The fundamental change, though, is they are actually trying to act commercial. I see. So I see, I'm going to really geek out on government procurement for a second to try explain the issue. Remember the, all the legends we've always heard where periodically you get the, oh, my God, the Department of Defense spent $10,000 on a toilet. Yeah. And that's because, no, the toilet itself only still only costs 100 bucks. Yeah. It's all of the... Um, procurement officers and the process of ensuring that fraud could never occur. <laughs> and it always goes back to some of the bad things that happened after World War II. And this yeah. is where we ended up with something called Federal Acquisition Rules, what we mm -hmm. call FAR. FAR is incredibly difficult to deal with. Mm. And it's hugely expensive and it doubles, triples, even quadruples the price of anything it touches. Mm -hmm. What happened is um, NASA had something called Other Transaction Authority built mm -hmm. into its charter way back in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. And that gave NASA the ability to say, we're going we're gonna to make an end run around FAR. Mm -hmm. We can do things that exit that and just do a standard contract. Here's the money, here's mm -hmm. the thing, go. What the federal government has finally learned is FAR is useful for things that you already know how to do. But when you're trying to do something new, you cannot do that. And so now what the government is doing is buying products and services from the new, these new companies in a way that doesn't kill the company in the process. Mm -hmm. Because if you're a startup and you have to deal with FAR, you're dead. You mm -hmm. cannot do it. And so that's one of the fundamental changes that the government is now acting like a sane customer. Mm. I should caveat that Michael lives in Washington, D.C., so he's mm. a bit of a policy wonk. Sorry. And he hangs out with staffers <laughs> and uh, is trying to subtly influence space policy to open things up and, and, for the world here. And I would say that the biggest innovation that allows some of these things to happen is the government stopped being a terrible, terrible customer. Okay. It's still... Mm. Ornery and hard to deal with sometimes, but at least the contracts won't kill. But you. how does it look like from a governance perspective? Because like in the in the sixties, it was a highly political issue. It was like you know America versus Russia. Yeah. I don't know if it's today like America versus China, possibly more bit. and more so, more yeah. and more so. And so like you know, I'm sure that you know, let's say if if you want to be a customer, I, I mean, well, not I'm sure. Like I'm, I'm guessing you can tell me if I'm wrong that they might say, hey, if we're going to work with you, you probably can't work with China. Absolutely, or, <laughs> right. But that's the, that's the yeah. case in general. So anyway. even though you're not an investor, you're not an owner they're still giving you rules to play by. Yeah, but those rules apply to everybody because there's something called International Trafficking and Arms Regulations, ITAR. Mm -hmm. And so for certain things that are protected technologies, you can't deal with China anyway, Yeah. whether you're dealing with the federal government or not. Mm -hmm. And most countries around the world, China included, have laws that limit the transfer of sensitive military technologies. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of space-related technologies that are what we call dual use. Mm. You know, you can use it peacefully, but you can also do bad things with it too. Right. And it even, so... It even comes down to us as investors. We have to be very careful where our investors are domiciled and what their citizenship is. And we, we have to know our, we have to know our investors so that it doesn't bite us 
Correct. on the line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah even and with so, OFAC countries and yes. whatnot. You know? mm-hmm. yes. exactly. So we have to put some good diligence into that as well. Yeah. Yeah, because I'm sure, you know, if if there's even just one LP that is, you know, coming from a restricted region, mm-hmm. and then you're now investing in a company that, I guess, with security clearances and whatnot, you know, mm-hmm. that might become an issue because they probably are able to, you know, give you information, you might have a lot of yeah. information. So then it's like a trickle down economy of, you know, sharing information that is not meant to go to certain eyes. Oftentimes, mm-hmm. we see the technology before the government does. Mm-hmm. And we see its development. And, you yeah. know, we're not, we're not seen the schematics but we understand what is going on when it's likely to go to market um yeah that's exciting what, what are some of the most maybe exciting kind of futuristic technologies that maybe the average person doesn't even know exist or that are happening um uh, yeah some fun ones and some you know scary ones and some yeah in between i like that uh reusable satellites is something that i never thought i'd see okay but there's new there's companies now that are working to basically land satellites mm-hmm. at the end of their life or after they've done the experiment that they wanted to do mm-hmm. um, they're not burning up in orbit anymore they're they're coming down and in some cases doing a soft landing and you're able to get your experiment out and it's it, that's pretty wild mm-hmm. to me mm-hmm. um, that's right what are you seeing michael that's well, some of it is the data analytics around Earth observation. Okay. Yeah. Um, that's going to simultaneously be very, very useful, mm-hmm. but it could also get creepy. Okay. Um, In what if, way? If, if you yeah. have anything you want to build and keep it private, you probably need to do it in the next year or two. Otherwise, you're going to have something looking down at you. Even through per, buildings? Not through the buildings. Well, okay. <laughs> sometimes a little bit through the building. Okay. Yeah. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. Time to get a bunker, secret lab. But we're getting to the point where it'll soon be ubiquitous coverage of the entire Earth, maybe not the exact pole yeah. for a while, but most interesting places on Earth are going to have something looking down at it mm-hmm. almost yeah. continuously. There's, um, a, there's a concept called, the, you've heard of it, digital twin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, both um, Amazon and Microsoft have, are building digital twins of the planet. Wow. And so mm-hmm. using that data, you can then do analytics like... And predictive know, analytics. Predictive analytics, yeah. and, you know, not just weather, but, you know, all kinds of, you know, animal migrations and all these other kinds of things. Once you have the data and you can extrapolate from it, um, there's a lot of really interesting things you can do that for managing our resources that we use on the planet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in the wrong hands, it can also get creepy and dangerous. And so I think there's going to be... At some point over the next, you know, 10, 20 years, there's going to be some general governance rules about how you can use some of this data. Yeah. And, uh, for example, at least in the U.S. and most countries, there's limits to the resolution you can go down to. Mm. And that has dropped down to about 10 centimeters in certain cases. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, that's going to be some pushback sometimes. So I think mm-hmm. you're going to have you know, this give and take of, okay, what what yeah. Earth observation data can you use, how you can use it, and I, I suspect we're going to see something. Yeah, I mean, I saw the, the before and after pictures with Umbra, for example, you know, where it's like mm-hmm. super crisp. Oh, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah, there's, and, another, there's another trend going on, too, that I think will disappoint some people, especially uh, when I first started looking at the space industry, uh, militarization of space mm-hmm. was something everybody was trying to avoid. Mm-hmm. And at this point in time, given everything that's happening and we're seeing the trends, militarization of space is probably inevitable. Mm, for and, sure. Mm-hmm. And, and so that has changed 
you know, the, the space cadets that I was hanging out with in 2012 uh, would be very disappointed, a lot of them, with how things transpired on that Ooh. regard. But they might have just been naive yeah. in thinking that that could be kept out when, uh, you know, the world is the world. Well, who, who even owns space? I know there's, you know, international rules that all space territory, like planetary planets are like neutral territory from what I understand. But like, I, I feel like that's not how the world works. Ultimately, and you know? less and less because nations are now dropping out of the moon treaty, yep. which was far more restrictive yep. than the outer space treaty. Everybody is whose space faring is still operating under the outer space theory or treaty. outer space treaty that essentially, I, I guess the bones of it is that a sovereign country cannot own real estate or, or, things right. in space yeah. you cannot claim sovereignty over any heavenly body right and where it gets a little bit gray from a legal standpoint yeah. is does that apply to their country's corporations and private citizens because ah, that was not go. envisioned mm -hmm. when they wrote this mm -hmm. they didn't think that companies or individuals yeah. would ever have the resources to do the things that they're now and it's a great door. back door for the governments too to say like, look, we, we can't do it without starting war. So you go do, we might give you the you, funding. You right. are 100% correct. And that is why I think some of these commercial contracts are coming down yeah. the pike in the future. It's because the government doesn't own it. A corporation does. Yeah. But the government's a customer. But, and that, that's where something called the, the Artemis Accords, which is mm. something that the, the U.S. government did starting uh, about four years ago now. Yeah. It's it's maintaining the the adherence to the outer space treaty because mm -hmm. nobody wants to touch those because yeah. it's 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 agreed upon law yeah and it seems to keep people from acting badly yeah I mean it's a Pandora's box where like right. you you, don't, you want don't want to be the one opening it exactly. you know maybe skirt around it a little bit but who knows what happens once one breaks whether it's the U S or China you know because then you might actually start having space wars you know. Right. And so what one of the things that the Artemis Accords kind of does is it takes a kind of a, a thought from the fact that nobody owns the oceans either. Mm -hmm. And but if you're on a boat in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and, and you you catch a fish, you get to keep the fish. The fish is now mm -hmm. yours. And so if you go to the moon, you cannot claim sovereignty that you own the piece of the moon that you that you're landing on. But if you do extract some resources from that spot to be able to make water or, you know, smelt it into to metals or whatever, that when you do that, when you improve it in some way, yeah. that's a mining term, then you own the product of Got what it. effort you put into it. And so that's where we're currently at. And that seems to be working. It's kind of a weird sort of libertarian idea of, you know, don't interfere with your neighbor. You know, you control your little spot. I think that's kind of the exclusion zone idea. Yeah, but then you don't want exclusion zones because then everybody's that's just a way of claiming sovereignty. It's a roundabout yeah. way. Yeah. We could do it. You can yeah, do yeah. it. We're Trust going me. way into policy the, now. The, the, there the, are podcasts that do nothing but talk about this. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the problem with that will, will but, eventually but, be, you know, the, the concept of the tragedy of the commons where, like, yeah. you know, you, you, if you're allowed to extract and once it's, you know, valuable enough and everybody starts extracting as a race, who can extract the fastest, you know? Well, isn't that kind of one of the exciting parts about space is that all the, the rules aren't written yet. And so yeah. we're, we're seeing them play out in real time here. We're, we're basically writing the course of history over the next couple of decades for how it's likely to play out yeah. for hundreds of years after. And, and waxing philosophical for a second, that's the, the, the fundamental thing that when I got into this sector mm -hmm. you know, was 
there's an, as, to quote Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, space is big. Mm. Space is really big. You have absolutely mm. no idea how really big space is. Yeah. There's enough room and enough resources that humanity can exist in space and people of very different outlooks on life and how to live can exist without coming into conflict with anyone else because they have all the resources they need and they have all the room they need. Mm -hmm. Down here, we're limited. Yeah. Everything that someone needs, someone else also needs it too, and there's a limited, finite amount of resources. So conflict is naturally going to occur. Mm -hmm. In space, the resources and the, the space to live in, mm -hmm. that's not the issue. So at least in that sense, space should be a much more peaceful place because you're not constantly constantly running into your neighbor. Except cislunar space is probably your most valuable real estate. It is right now because that's what I was going to say. Wars have always been fought over resources. You know, back like the back back when human population was very, very small, when like, you know, probably human population was, you know, smaller than some big cities today. Mm -hmm. Um they you know they still fought over the river basin territories, you know, where there was like, you know, there was stuff growing where there was like very fertile ground, you know. Right. But this is this is one of the things that, that we look at the technologies that are enabling um, human settlement of space. They're the same technologies we're using down here to be able to utilize the land more efficiently. And so you, in space, you're making everything out of the raw materials, the basic fundamental elements. Mm -hmm. We're learning how to create crops and food and everything, not by having to create a farm the way we have, like mm -hmm. you would find in, in, in the Midwest somewhere. You no, print your food. You print your food from the fundamental elements. Yeah. And so, you know, you're starting to get kind of Star Trek-y. But yes, that's where we're going to, is that you can build a civilization anywhere because everything is under your control that you need to be able to have inputs in that civilization. Well, it better be under your control. It's it's uh, going to kill you otherwise. Right. So. And so that's the kind of, the, when some people look at some of the things that we invested in, um, they're like, wait, that's not space. Um, we invested in a... The fish one. Yeah, about, fish. Half, about half our portfolio you wouldn't immediately recognize as a space company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, it's all connected in one way or another. Right. I know, because I, I, I've been vegetarian for like 20 years, and I remember talking to Lisa. And uh, I looked over the portfolio back then, and it was like, you know, finless meats, you know, which mm -hmm. was like, you know, fake fish. And I was like, mm -hmm. space <laughs> space investment. But it yeah. makes sense, because it's something that's, you know, a viable protein for even in space that, you know, they can create in space. Mm -hmm. But yeah. it needs to taste good. Right. And so we invested, one of the other ones we invested in was um, New Age Meats, which was mm -hmm. pork products. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you're going to go into space, the livestock supply chain is one of the most energy intensive and wasteful things that we do. If we can yeah. figure out, if you're going to take that into space and human beings need protein and yeah. we'd like our protein to taste good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. you're not going to replicate the livestock supply chain in space. Yeah, so you're, you're not going to import cows right. to Mars, but right. maybe you can print, bring a 3D printer and some Right, protein. print a steak. Yeah. Right. And that's, but those are the things that allow us to be able to live both more creatively and more energy efficiently. Yeah. And so that's what we learn from space that we then need to bring back to the Earth and make sure that we're not screwing up down here. Energy and heat management are major parts issues. of any space portfolio. So, yeah, we, we have a carbon nanotube company that is able to more efficiently get heat off of semiconductors. That was satellite and designed for satellites that can then be... Be transformed into using for terrestrial applications. Mm -hmm. um, we are invested in an apparel company. Now, yep. why in the world are we invested in, in an apparel company? Um, it's because 
they are using an aerogel material that was developed by NASA mm -hmm. that they've found a unique formulation to coat fibers with mm. that they can make winter wear Got here it. on the earth. And you can make it, you know, instead of that big puffy jacket, yeah, 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 yeah. Thin, little, thin little layer like that. Perfect. And so, you know, we see so many technical advances that first come out of the space sector and a lot of times they die on the vine. Like mm -hmm. nobody's picking them up. There's there's probably a thousand technologies out there that NASA developed or one of their partners developed that they did a research paper and yeah. then that was it. They were done. I remember but um, maybe some from them, like some high school researcher like Velcro, you know, was like a side yeah. product invented yeah. by NASA, you know? Actually, no. It no? No. Uh, well, most Vel of the Velcro, stories, Velcro, Velcro Tang, all those are... No, those pre-existed yeah. in the 40s, both of them. <laughs> no? Okay. Yeah, then no, they lied to me. Hate to burst the bubbles. Yeah. yeah. Uh, sorry. Well, I, but I guess they've invented a lot of other cool stuff. Yes. That's probably way cooler than Velcro. Well, so. they, they've, they've done some, some really substantial stuff, like uh, fundamental pharmaceutical research mm -hmm. that has led yeah. to you know, major drugs, major mm -hmm. treatments that were first discovered in microgravity. There was, there was a, a key component that was discovered in microgravity because mm -hmm. think about microgravity as the one laboratory variable yep. that no life on earth has ever experienced before. Mm. And so when you put it in there, you get different behaviors, mm. different gene expressions, yep. different things happen when you have a new variable added to experiment. Yeah. So we're we're still in the process of figuring out what that means. Right, because then now you're you're almost adding a new control group to seeing mm -hmm. what life on Earth is actually like. Right. Because mm -hmm. you're assuming that that's the fixed variable, but it's not. Yep. Right. right. Yeah, interesting. I've got a couple more questions uh, before we wrap it up. Um, one is, and this we, we hinted at this earlier with that kind of the approach to investing, which is kind of bridging futurism and profitability, you know, because yeah. it's very easy to talk about, you know, I think when people think space, they mostly think of like rockets and everything they don't think of, like, what do you eat once you're in space? What do you wear when you're in space and so forth? Mm -hmm. And so maybe from the angle of an entrepreneur, you know, that wants to work in the space industry, build something in the space industry, how do you even get started if you're not a billionaire? <laughs> you uh, know, not everybody wait, can start build, build buying or yeah. building rockets. It's the same thing that you do in any other sector Yeah. is if you, and this is one of the things that we spend a lot of time dealing with. And I'm coming from a, a recovering software engineer, mm -hmm. um, technical people, we tend to fall in love with the technology as opposed to the actual problem that it's trying to solve. Right. And that's one of the biggest issues we have. That's one of the reasons why there are the last time I checked 176 launch companies in the world. Only too many. Yes, way too many. <laughs> That's about 170 too many. Right. And, and, but it is because rockets are fun to build. Yeah. And somebody comes up with some kind of idea and they think they can do it, but they, they never focus on the fundamental business of business, which yeah. is solving a problem for somebody in a way that they're willing to pay you to do it. Yeah. And hopefully the amount they pay you is greater than what it costs to be able to do the, the thing. And that's the, the fundamental thing that I would tell anybody that's looking at getting into the space sector to do something is solve a problem. Mm. Fall in love with your potential customers' problems, not your solution to it. I think you wrote a paper on this. I do. You? If you look, <laughs> if you look on our website, this comes from the lean startup methodology. Yeah. But there's a sure. a market readiness level thing where we, you test the market, you test it with the customer, and I've got several papers. I, I did the, a, a talk at the um, Aerospace Corporation event. Mm -hmm. 
where I had a large number of people from NASA and a whole bunch of other companies that had been in the space sector for a long time. And the basic point I said, unless you actually have a customer and a customer that's real, none of this stuff works. They're like, mm. really? And so, yeah. Novel it, concept. It, right. In the space sector, the whole idea of having a customer that's not the government is so alien that nobody ever thought about having a customer. And so it all does come back to solving a business problem using technology to do it. And mm -hmm. space is unique enough. It has unique solutions to these problems. Mm -hmm. But if you can solve a problem more cost effectively by not doing something in space, do it that way. Mm -hmm. You know, it's... For now. For now. But that's the thing about the sector that's been one of our biggest issues is we have a lot of, of entrepreneurs that are far more enamored of their technology. Mm -hmm. And so that's a Technology drag. in search of a problem. Yeah, that, that is a problem for the sector. Less, I think it's in, it's in a lot of industries. Crypto has that problem is as it, well. Is it? Know? Okay. I mean, that was my, my first startup that, that failed miserably. You know, I, was, I had fallen in love with the technology and I never actually talked to a customer until I built the thing. And yeah. They, no, I don't need that. So. so that's kind of the secret to how to invest for profits in venture capital space mm -hmm. is understand the company's customer and in often cases understand the customer's customer mm. and how that value chain filters back to your investment. That, that's something we sort of have a reputation uh, in the industry is, is uh, whenever Michael comes to talk about something, he's like, it's not just who your customer is. I want to know the, the chain all the way down. And right. That was an example I used uh, when I was talking to Aerospace Corporation. It's like if you're in the the ag tech business, who do you think the the who do you think the ultimate customer is? Like the farmer? I'm like no. It's the person who wants a meal that is healthy, fulfilling, mm. reliable, and safe. Yeah. If the if human beings didn't eat food, farmer would do something else. And so yeah. in all these things, you have to be able to identify what that value network all the way down is and what value is being derived at each step and what does that mean to you? Mm -hmm. And that's the hardest thing for technology-oriented entrepreneurs to get is, no, it's not all about you. So, yeah. That's funny. Let's do a couple of rapid-fire questions. Sure. Um, maybe not so rapid-fire, but like, one, we talked about this outside, how can I go to space? Any listener, mm. like if any of the listeners like, I actually want to go to space, I don't have 50 million lying around. What's a way I can make it? Wait a little bit longer for the price to drop. Okay. That's, that's option one. Yeah. Um, but option even two. then, the other option is getting someone else to pay you to do it. And that's one of the things. Which even is the, the thing most people don't realize already happens. Right. Okay. The, the people that are currently flying up to the International Space Station doing space tourism. Yep. When they get on the space station, they're actually doing things that make money. Okay. Um, some of them are doing research. Some of them are doing media events. Some of mm -hmm. them are all kinds of different things. Some of them recently have, have become profitable because they had derivative rights and oh, on okay. content that they produced. And over time, that content builds up enough residuals that you make money on it. Mm -hmm. And for example, the, the Axiom 1 flight that was uh, this past summer, the astronauts that went there, they spent nine days. They were incredibly busy the entire time. They actually said they were a little bit too busy. They didn't really have time to look out the window. Oh. Right. And, um, but their time they were, was very scripted. They were being paid to do research by people in their countries. Mm -hmm. um, they, were, they were doing a lot of outreach to communities back in their home mm -hmm. countries. And they were quite busy. Mm -hmm. And I think it really is because the people that can afford to go right now are inherently entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. 
And so they're looking at how can everything I do create value? Mm. And when you look at it that way, you can start figuring out ways, whether it's entertainment or fundamental scientific research or anything else, that you can create it so that, you know, you may still have to pay a little bit, but the bulk of the, the cost, which is currently right now about $50 million, mm -hmm. build a business around it. Yeah. And that's how you can afford to do it. Gotcha. Okay, so I got to find something that I can do in space that makes money. I guess the, the genetic research you mentioned is some of that, you know, or, or shoot a, a great photographer or shoot a movie like Tom Cruise, is shoot a movie like Tom Cruise, you know, maybe if, if the podcast grows, you know, and there's like millions of you watching this, maybe then like we can make it, you know, but I think Joe Rogan is closer to that than I am, but <laughs> eventually. Um, all right. So that's how we can get to space or just wait. You know, I think, you know, anybody who's got, if you can wait another 20 years, it's, it's, I think it's probably going to look a lot better. Um, oh, much. Yes. Space Force. Yeah. What about the actual one on the movie, the TV show? What, what's it, what's the it TV takes? show is awful compared to the reality. Yes. <laughs> it's, so, so it's, Unwatchable it's, for some uh, of us. Um, Space Force, you know, a lot of people think uh, Donald Trump came up yeah. with it. No, actually, we've been talking about an equivalent of that going Inevitable. all the way back to the yeah. first Bush administration. Oh, okay. Um, there are active threats in space. Um, okay. China is actively blocking and screwing around with our space assets in space. Started as cyber type right. threats, but now it's getting into the realm of the physical. Right? Yeah. Actually going Lasers. up and manipulating things. Well, um, just to, just physical things getting okay. in the way of other physical things Got causes it. chaos. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and so there's needed to be something because the problem at the time was is all this was embedded in the Air Force. Yep. And so you had fighter pilots trying to do space stuff and it just wasn't working. And so there was a long conversation about when is the right time to, to create a separate branch whose job was to solve this specific problem. Yeah. Who thinks and, like a a space general or, you right. know, somebody who that's their primary. When it was under the Air Force, space kind of always got second fiddle. Yeah. It was, it was always in a different mindset. Mm -hmm. So it, it really does make sense to split it out into yeah. its own separate thing, especially going forward. I mean, this, like I said, was kind of an inevitability. Mm -hmm. um, it's just a question of, you know, who, who was yeah, president when, it, when it happened. And, it's right. going to have entirely different like policies as well, because one is really more international. The other one is really defined by your national rules. Yeah. Right? And, and you have different to, treaties, different rules yeah. of engagement. To be honest, stuff. Space Force is still figuring out their role mm -hmm. at this point. They're, they're still very new. So that does sound like a little, a little bit like the TV show. Uh, <laughs> but no. Not quite that <laughs> no, no, chaotic. No, 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 no. Yeah. Well, right. it, but it also has to, 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 to quote yeah. somebody in, in, in Space Force, um, I will deal with the alligator that's swimming toward me after I deal with the one that's chewing my foot off. I see. Okay. Yeah, they so, have a lot on their plate. Right. right I mean, now. they're standing up an entirely new branch of the military, and that's that in itself is difficult. Yeah. And so, they'll get to those things. But right now, they have active threats they're dealing with, wow. and and they'll 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 grow and they'll deal with these other problems later. Mm -hmm. Okay. Moon landing happened or didn't happen? Or totally, totally happened. Totally happened. <laughs> oh yeah. I don't. I don't have any doubt. Okay. How would you disprove one a non-believer? Um, show the pictures of the footprints when you go back again here in yeah. a couple of years. And besides we, that, we don't want to get punched out by Buzz Aldrin. Yeah. So um, you know, I, we run had, into him at conferences I've had um, plenty, in a while. I've you, had still, of, you can still throw a punch? Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, don't screw with Buzz. Okay. <laughs> um, you you mentioned that to him, and ooh, you're going to get it. Um, we've had several uh, spacecraft that are in orbit around the moon that are continually mapping and looking at things. on the yeah. And you can see the Apollo landers sitting there. Oh, really? You can see the footprints. You can see the tire tracks. All of it's still it's, it's a It's a fun theory, but it, it, it came... Go trace the origin of it yeah. sometime. 
And it came out of some crackpot stuff. How, how come the footprints and the tire prints, they're still there? Like, I mean, because there's no atmosphere. no atmosphere, no erosion, oh, no erosion, those, no. those footprints, no wind, as long as you don't go near Now, this is one of the issues with landing on the moon. Yes, is this is an issue there. Since there is no atmosphere. Yeah. If you kick up dust from a rocket engine, yeah. mm -hmm. that dust, nothing will stop it except the gravity of the moon. So it, Right now, depending on the rocket, the dust will actually end up landing on the entire other side of the moon. Oh, it will just keep rotating and flying around? It does. Well, some of it will go into orbit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so that dust becomes a serious problem. Oh. So, yeah, if, if nobody actually generates a lot of dust on the moon, those footprints will be there for millions of years. But as soon as we have activity of any extent, oh, they're probably going to be eroded. I feel like we'll go away. with too much activity in space space itself is going to become so messy with all this stuff flying been, around. But the, the, thing, the moon is incredibly messy already. Yeah. Um, the astronauts that went to, uh, to the moon under Apollo, mm -hmm. they really only stayed there maximum. I think the longest one is three days. Okay. Um, and the dust is so incredibly abrasive that all of their equipment was really starting to break down. It, it affects, it gets into the joints of the, the, the space suits. And wow. it's... Um, it's like miniature razor blades, essentially. Yes, it is. On the moon. When you look at it under a microscope, wow. it's shards of metal mm -hmm. and glass, and, and and that just are incredibly sharp. Because they don't erode. On on Earth, you have you would oxidize. have the same things, but yeah. the environment, the atmosphere, it it makes everything more subtle over mm -hmm. time, mm -hmm. and so it's not such a problem. So that's, but one, there, of the, that's no. one of the reasons why right now NASA is putting a lot of at least some effort into how do I mitigate this problem? So one of the first things, if you're going to build a movement or land on the moon and do it on any kind of regular basis, the first thing you do is you land and build a landing pad. Mm. You take the surface of the moon, the regolith, the dirt, and one of the techniques is you microwave it, and it turns into a solid piece that, that doesn't have the dust problem. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the biggest issues that people are afraid of right now. Yeah, because I'm so, sure that's not just isolated to the moon. It's going to be with like most... Oh, every planetary body. So that's where yeah. you get into the argument between the O'Neillians who want to build just in in free, space. Yeah. free open space, the people who want to do, you know, industrialization on the moon, the Mars candidates. Yeah. You know, all this, everything has its own problem. But they're all different. Like the, the dust problems on Mars are different than the dust problems on the moon. Different chemicals. Mars has an atmosphere. Yeah. Um, Venus, you can't even go to the surface on because it's, you know, 800 degrees and the pressure's murder. And there's no way we're ever sending people That's to the surface. That's a 10, on. yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so yeah, it, it, it's a difficult problem, but it's solvable. Interesting. And there is actually an organization called um, For All Moonkind who's mm -hmm. who is working to preserve those footprints, preserve all the histor history mm -hmm. at each one of those landing sites. And one of their major issues right now is how do we preserve it from the dust from the other human activity that happens up happening on the moon? So, yeah. Correct. It's a challenge. Yeah, not just that. I mean, also like if I guess if it because he said it even exits the moon, like if it gets into the, the not well into space, it's not the atmosphere. It goes out into space. You're gonna have more and more things flying around, which then can like you know get in the way of rockets so and machines. Yeah. Yeah, but that stuff's already there. Yeah. Space is dirty. It already is yeah. dirty. Yeah, but imagine like if you like you know hundred x activity out there, it's gonna yeah. get <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah. But the sol the, the the nice thing about it is the actual solar wind cleans a lot of this stuff up. Right. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's good. Aliens. I hope not. Insufficient evidence. <laughs> Insufficient evidence. You think we're the only species traveling around here? I uh, no. So, there's no evidence. Okay. So yeah. Way. So you, I thought you, that the, you, you didn't, can't the, the didn't the Department of Defense say that. They spotted UFOs. I think didn't they open the files? Like 
Oh, well, they did, yeah, but UFOs they... doesn't equal aliens, though. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, they changed the, the acronym, too. Well, yeah. It's called now. But... My, my theory on this is that there, there's probably intelligent life somewhere mm-hmm. out there in the universe, but we may never find it because of the expansion of the universe, the mm-hmm. way the physics works. Um, everything's getting further away is what the current theory looks like. And our visible range and our ability to travel under the speed of light yeah. is finite, essentially. And also because of the using, you know, basically radio frequencies, electromagnetic waves, it's a cube law distribution. Yeah. So mm-hmm. as it dissipates out, it gets weaker and weaker and weaker so fast mm-hmm. that the ability to communicate, even if you saw some evidence. I mean, right now, there are some astronomers that are looking at um, evidences of technological civilization, looking at the spectra of certain stars to see if there are elements that should not appear there and that mm-hmm. may be an indicator mm-hmm. of something that may or may not have occurred. Oh, I totally expect that we'll find <laughs> life out in the universe. I don't know about intelligent right. that's life. The, that's the it. big question. So maybe mark. some bacteria. <laughs> well, right. I, I think the components of life are just too ubiquitous yeah. to we think can't be that, that they're special. not going to be somewhere. And right. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm still holding hope that we might find them in our own solar system mm-hmm. if you get out to... Jupiter or Saturn. Um, that's an I mean, it's that's from an entirely different set of Yeah, I, I, I was going to say from like the, the, the pure, um, I guess the, the, the travel math, is it even possible for us to leave our solar system and return? Mm, uh, that's hard. That's another entire... You might, yes. we're, we're looking at technologies that could do it, but man, is that hard. You may leave, but you won't be coming back. Right. Oh, you right. won't. No, you won't. Yeah. Right now, let's so just get, tell the story. <laughs> let's get to Mars and back within a few yeah. weeks instead of a few months. Right. That, that's so our first goal. One of the things I think... Well, um, that doesn't sound that bad, a few weeks or a few months. I was just thinking like, you know, interstellar where like you come back as like a 70-year-old 70 70,000 yeah. years to get yeah. to the next well, star that, that, system. That's, yeah, yeah, time dilation is one thing. But um, oh, what was the... We're traveling. Of the, well, one of the things about going that speed you yeah. know make it easy enough to get somewhere else um when you are going that fast every little speck of dust becomes yeah. a bullet that's the problem mm. that we see that isn't in sci-fi right at least not in most sci-fi i think right. passengers right. might have they mentioned just go to the warp bit. speed and like that was, yeah that, thank you that was the one that passed yeah because if you look at the design of that 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 spacecraft and passengers yeah there's a shield Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they, it was constantly running into things, and yep. that's you have to have something like that. Like, don't have like Michael light. said, space is dirty, and the tiniest little speck, depending upon your speed you're going, yeah, can. We know this from hurricanes in Florida, yeah. where like you know sometimes you know there might be a fucking banana flying and it kills somebody. Yeah. you know, seems harmless, but now so there now might accelerate that speed banana limit. at twenty percent the speed of light. Yeah. Right. <laughs> oh God. So, so speed of light is kind of the the barrier speed limit that yeah. we think in physics you can't get beyond but yeah. there might actually be a practical speed yeah. limit yeah. in there based on literally yeah. hitting things but right. then again we're seeing companies developing technology literally like star trek shields where they have an em type device yeah. it's it's really weak right now don't don't get your hopes up anytime soon but I've, I, it's I, I, on that path, so right. maybe we'll figure it out someday. There was a group called the, the Tennessee Valley Interstellar Workshop, and mm-hmm. it was I've been to a few of them. I know a bunch of the people in it, and, and they're thinking about how do you get to the next star? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's generation ships. And one of the questions was, you know, if it takes, you know, 10,000 years to get somewhere, how do you maintain civilization on a spaceship that's a generation ship? All these kind of really, yeah. really, really hard, hard problems. 
Um, I'll settle for the solar system right now. Yeah, to be clear, we're not investing in generation ships. No, right no, no, now. no, 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 <laughs> no, 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 no. So. That's fascinating, guys. I, I really enjoyed today's session. What's the best way for somebody to like learn more about space? Are there any books that you say like, hey, this is a great primer or resources? What's the best one for that? The High Frontier got a lot of people. It did, into but the it's, it's really dated these days. And so yeah, it's hard that's to true. Read. That's true. Um, actually, but there is a there is a documentary of Gerard mm -hmm. K. O'Neill's life on Apple TV. Mm -hmm. um, um, that's a good introduction awesome. to some of the fundamental philosophies that drive a lot of people um, in the sector. Um, Honestly, one of the best places to keep track of what's going on in the sector and learn what's doing is Twitter because a lot of people are on there. You get the, the, the feeds from ULA and SpaceX and everything like that. And, and dedicated uh, YouTube channels is, oh, is how you get uh, the Everyday current Astronaut. Uh, Everyday Astronaut, Marcus House. Mm. Uh, these guys all do great. Uh, I think Marcus has a weekly update that right. is really, you know, Telling you everything you need to know that happened in that last week in space. Yep. The, the guy that bought one of the, the first Starship yep. flights to do the travel around the moon, um, uh, Tim, everyday astronaut, is mm -hmm. one of the ones that got picked. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. he's going on that flight. And we don't know exactly when that flight's going to happen. And so, yeah, he does a really good job. literally over the moon. Yeah. He does that. a really good job of taking something complex. Yep. Making it simple. Tim died. Not making it simple. You still Tim understand Tim died, it. isn't it? Yeah, Tim died. There we go. Yeah. Okay. Um, it... He doesn't make it so that you don't understand it. He helps you understand it in its complexity. Ah, okay. So you really do start learning about yeah. mm -hmm. how this stuff works as opposed to just getting the headline. Without just dumbing it down, right? right like right, actually right. like pulling the piece apart and then putting it back together. Yep. Love that. Awesome. So there's a lot of, it's funny because in crypto, same thing, we've got crypto Twitter, you know, like that's a mm -hmm. great place to learn from. Sounds like there's space Twitter. So oh, there is, it's called Spitter. <laughs> Spitter. That's a, that's a great acronym. So, right. so if you want to learn more about space, go to the, go to the Spitter. Go to Spitter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, ULA, SpaceX, the Everyday Astronaut, a lot of great resources. Well, yep. Or talk um, to us. We're we're happy to have these discussions with anybody yeah. who wants to learn. So glad to come back and do another podcast. Yeah, hundred percent. What's um what's the best way to reach you guys? You also on Twitter, uh, Twitter handles? Mm -hmm. Bare, uh, barely. Yeah, uh, <laughs> first initial, last name for me. So M Mealing. That's my Twitter handle. Boom. Um, just go to our website, StarbridgeVC.com. Um, yeah, and you know, just ping me on Twitter. I'm always there, always happy to answer questions and help people out. And especially if there's an entrepreneur out there who's yeah. thinking about getting into the sector wants to know um, how to, to um, not go through some of the pain that some of us did in the early days. Yep. Yeah, learn from our mistakes. That's, yes, don't that's do great. the dumb crap that we did. Amazing. How about you, Stephen? You on Twitter? Uh, barely. I'm Starbridge Steve, I believe. Starbridge on, Steve. On, on Twitter, <laughs> but I, I never comment. I just listen into the discussions. Yeah, yeah, but yeah it's the flat and wall. If somebody reaches out, sure, sure. Awesome. Well, Stephen, Michael, thanks so much for the time. Really enjoyed and look forward to, you know, seeing where space takes us. Yes, so absolutely. It's an adventure. To that. Yep. To the moon. To bye the moon. Bye. bye.